Hi, everyone. I'm Raj Kumar, president and editor-in-chief of DevX. This week, we'll be breaking down the big headlines in global development and bringing in some top experts to help us do it. If you want to follow along with the stories we're talking about, check out devx.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter, The Newswire. There's a link in the description. Follow us along on Twitter, and you can see many of the stories we're talking about today. And we'd love to hear what you think. This is This Week in Global Development. We are joined today uh, once again by Anna Gowell, who's a managing editor at DevX. Hey, Anna. Hi, Rush. Thanks for having me. And we've got a special guest in Sean Carroll, who is a, an old friend I haven't seen in a long time. Sean is pretty well known in the development community for the many hats he's worn over the years. Currently, the CEO of Anera, which is a leading humanitarian agency working in the Middle East. And Sean uh, was the chief operating officer and chief of staff at USAID back in the Obama administration and uh, used to run programs at the Club of Madrid, as well as many other hats in the development community. So it's great to have you here, Sean. Great to be with you, Raj. Hi, Raj. Hi, Anna. Hi, everyone. Well, we we, uh, have a special week here because this is what we call Pro Week at DevX. You know, as an independent news organization, our uh, subscribers are really key to the success of our news organization. And we have a week that we just dedicate to them. And so this has been Pro Week where we've been publishing a lot of special content and hosting lots of special events for our pro subscribers who we really greatly appreciate. So first of all, a shout out to all of them. And it's really an impressive list if you looked at the individuals who are pro members as well as the organizations that are signed up. It's kind of a who's who of global development. And we do our best to kind of dig in and give them the deep analysis and insight that they need to do their jobs well. Um, so, you know, this week is no exception. We just kind of supercharged it and gave them lots of additional content, um, including a bunch of stories related to artificial intelligence. And I thought we might just start there. I, I said a number of the things that you do, Sean, but it just so happens you also chair a AI startup. And so I really love to get your take on this as well as Anna's. Uh, but artificial intelligence, obviously the buzz everywhere in every sector and global development is no exception. And we published a couple of stories looking at what are the implications broadly in development? Where are, they, where are the applications? What about specifically at USAID? What are they doing? So maybe to start with you, Sean, um, what is your, your take on kind of where we are as a global development and humanitarian community when it comes to AI? And, and what's the potential? Oh, I think we're just at the very beginning, and I think the potential's massive. You're right that there's a huge buzz, and I, but I think it's really still just kind of at low frequencies, and, and the amount and speed with which it's going to grow, uh, and, and at, at, at warp speed like we've never seen with technology, I think, and, and that's really saying something, because, of course, we've seen lots of tech, technological innovations and, and what they can mean for international human development and humanitarian response, but but this, I think, is going to top all others. We're, we're going to see over the next days and weeks exactly how AI can transform the, the work we do. I think making uh, making a lot of the work less less tedious, uh, opening up access uh, in all sorts of ways. Yeah, Anna, I'd love to get your quick take as we dive a little deeper into this topic of AI and development. Yeah, sure. And to your point, Sean, you know, in terms of making the work less tedious, you know, USAID has described um, themselves as having a staffing crisis. So the fact of automating some of these very, you know, monotonous tasks, even memos, um, could theoretically help what, what many have described as a depleted workforce. And I think the other big uh, emerging um, 
phenomenon is simply translation services. Uh, if you can just imagine uh, what a difference that could make in terms of applying for contracts, uh, including, you know, translating less well-known African languages. So to me, that's one development that I think is is really the most exciting because it could really level this localization uh, playing field. Yeah, Alexis Bunnell, who's a former chief innovation officer at USAID, said in one of our stories that you could compare AI to working with a really good intern at your office, uh, meaning you know you could get some great work out of that intern and it might make you a lot more productive, but you're not just going to publish whatever they give you, right, or post it as public policy. Um, so you need to have checks and balances in place. But there does seem to be a big opportunity in a sector where there is so much paperwork. There is so so much administration. Think about finance, compliance, HR, all of these back office functions that are so key to the way global development works. There could be some big opportunities there. I don't know, Sean, are you seeing any of that at Anera? Well, I'm, I'm seeing that we're starting to realize that a lot of this work can be done. And, and it, it really is happening on a daily basis where we're still forgetting sometimes that the tools now exist, right? We're saying we should write minutes on this meeting and send it out. Or do you have a, do you have a, a template for an MOU I could use? I mean, these are just two examples this week. And then suddenly we remember, oh, yeah, we, we don't have to rely on uh, what we had before or, or make it up from scratch. We, we can do it with AI. And, uh, and it really is, it's extraordinary. And I just think the speed at which people will recognize, you, you talked about an intern, I'm using, I'm using read AI, which acts as a, as a kind of intern for me and goes, either comes with me to my meetings or goes to meetings that I'm not in and gives me a report on the meeting. And it's not just a transcript and a video, but it's a summary, it's action items, it's what were the key questions. And I think very intriguingly, as we work remotely, it tells you how many filler words you used, how much each person spoke, whether you used inclusive or exclusive words and phrases. It's it's really quite stunning. Yeah, that's a really good example of a tool because when you think about how much time is spent in meetings in our industry, and a lot of it is because there are protocol issues, right? And you need to make sure the right people are invited and included. And there's good reasons behind all of that, but it can eat up a lot of productive time. And so if there's ways to reduce it, that right there can be a huge a huge boost. I think about, you know, at DevX, we've been talking about something we call the SDG talent gap. Um, and the reason we talk about that is there's so much focus on the SDG financing gap, this idea that there's trillions of dollars needed every year if we're going to hit the SDGs, which we're right now nearing the midpoint of. Well, one way to get there is if you can make each dollar go further. And one way to make each dollar go further is to find efficiencies in the way that we do development work. And, and maybe potentially there's a lot of opportunities kind of in the back office of global development. That's right. And what I think we're, we're seeing, as we all know, there is a huge financing gap to, to reach the, the goals of the SDGs. And only 15% of the goals are on, on target. And there's a estimated three million, three trillion, two and a half to four and a half trillion dollar uh, financing deficit each year for the remaining seven and a half years of the 15 year window. And it's not because there isn't financing and funding, and it's not because there aren't good ideas and, and development and humanitarian solutions. It's that there's a gap in, in matching those. And I think AI will be a huge help in that matchmaking to, to get funding dollars to the best and most impactful ideas. And, you know, one way will be in, in proposal writing. Um, 
helping uh, helping others to 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 match to meet that gap. And and USAID is very focused on localization as we as we are all are. And there's a recognition that a huge barrier to localization is that many local NGOs don't have the capacity to respond to 150 page requests for applications and uh, AI tools can help uh, help with that task as well. Yeah, it does seem, and we mentioned this in the story, that localization could be sort of the big use case for USAID in that you have both sides of the equation. You have the, the local organization that may be able to use these tools to more effectively apply for funding. And then you have, as Anna was getting to, the chance to make the staff inside USAID more efficient in reviewing those proposals. I, I think too, just to, just to add, we've talked a lot about the paperwork, but the kind of on the ground ability of AI in the humanitarian sphere of what it can do. Um, you know, in particular, we had an article where we kind of went beyond some of the, the generalities of, of what AI can do and got in, dug into a lot of the more um, specifics of how it can help humanitarians in particular respond more quickly, pinpoint who really needs assistance. I mean, some of this technology has already been there, mapping and satellites, but has been really ramped up thanks to machine learning. And I think one of the the programs that um, Raji mentioned, Alexis Bonell, who pointed out uh, there's a World Food Program uh, um, has teamed up with Google AI for something called SKAI. And it literally goes into real time, provides real time information on disaster damage assessments. And so in after in the wake of the flooding in Pakistan, um, what normally would take two weeks of assessing the damage took several hours. So I think on the ground, what it's going to be capable of doing in terms of disasters, climate, food, medicine, um, it's just really going to be revolutionary. Yeah, I mean, just think about um, two of the big sectors in our space, uh, education and health. In both of those, there's a massive gap in terms of trained workforce in almost every context we're talking about. And so if AI can allow you know, community health workers to have diagnostic tools at the point where they're meeting someone uh, who needs care, and that person therefore doesn't necessarily have to go to a city for a hospital or a clinic where they have to try to find a way to get there and use precious resources to pay for transportation, et cetera. Yeah, there's huge opportunities just in those two areas. And then there's the, a big category, which is kind of knowing what's happening. You gave a good example with the World Food Program, but the, the idea of assessments and surveillance and, and seeing what the needs are, that seems to be a really big category that was described in that piece that we published this week. Yeah, well, continuing on what you're saying, I think in the in the field, particularly as we have to make rapid decisions, you know, sometimes we don't always have or always remember, have at our fingertips or remember from our own institutional memory or that of our colleagues, you know, what are the best practices and what are some pitfalls? And often with good intentions, people will try something again, not knowing about or forgetting about uh, some some unintended consequences. And I think AI can help us quickly remember, oh yeah, that that seems like a good idea, but remember this can happen, right? Um, so I think it can help uh, quickly suss out what are the what are the best practices, what are the best ways to respond, and also what are the things we need to watch out for. And we'll, we'll have AI will allow us to have that on a collective sort of global basis. And also individual organizations can, can have it 
uh, with the with the database being their uh, documentation and their history and their best practices and, and and past failures or pitfalls. Yeah, the three of us sound quite optimistic, at least so far, about AI. And I guess I wonder because there's also lots of people who are pessimistic or wor really worried about the negative implications. And we get into some of that in our reporting this week. You know, on, on the spectrum of super worried to, you know, super excited. Where do you think you fall in terms of where AI can play in the development space? Well, I'm definitely on, on the super excited uh, side. I, I, you know, recognize that people are nervous and, and, and it scares them. It's new things are always a, a bit scary and artificial intelligence seems particularly scary. But I think if we take deep breaths, sort of, you know, uh, generally in front of this, a big opportunity in front of us, but also with each individual case. Anytime someone's uh, uh, confronted with it, take take a breath, see what it is. Uh, remember that 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 we're smart enough. Uh, we hope and we'll be tested. We're smart enough to distinguish between what is you know, useful, productive, constructive versus something that could be destructive. And and also, I think there does tend to be a little bit over worry about security and these tools are are built with security there's a question of whether uh you know whether you're you're giving away your data for free and i think people should pay attention to that are you uh, are you able to uh, get compensated for the data in some way by by using the tool or or keep your data to just yourself uh, but in terms of 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 security i think people are are generally a little bit too worried and we should take a breath and think about the the productive use, for instance, on on meeting assistance and meeting analytics, I just think the the upside is so much higher than the downside. Sure, are there meetings where you don't want uh, where you don't want it recorded? Yeah, there 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 could be some, but I think it also helps us to make sure that we're being the best we can be. If we've got accountability through AI tools, then maybe we won't uh, say or do things that we shouldn't say or do. Right? Yeah, that's true. That's true, Anna. Where do you come down on the spectrum? I, I'm, I would say I'm likewise excited, but also a bit more wary. Um, you know, one of the examples we gave in our articles was that AI could help provide free legal aid to refugees. And if you think about that, um, that's a terrific thing. But if that legal advice is incorrect, uh, that refugee might lose their chance at asylum. So I think AI needs to have those human guardrails. That's really critical. Um, and then just in general, you know, we need to make sure that it's being developed with people who are on the front line. So of course we get back to localization here um, because they need to be included in these tools. They, they need to, their input is absolutely critical. Otherwise, my concern is that really AI will be you know, used and benefit people solely in the global north. Are you interested in the intersection of business and social impact? Do you want to know how corporate sustainability, ESG, impact investing, and more can contribute to development finance? My name is Adva Saldinger. I'm a senior reporter at DevEx, and I've been reporting on these issues for nearly a decade. I'm the author of DevEx Invested, our free weekly newsletter dedicated to development finance. Every Tuesday, we explore how companies, investors, and market mechanisms are reshaping the world of development finance. Visit devex.com newsletters and join us on Tuesdays. And one of the things we heard about AI during 
a summit we hosted during the World Bank spring meetings. This is the, the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth and Aspen Institute Summit um, on Global Inclusive Growth. We heard that one reason why you might actually be able to include local communities and affected populations using AI in a way we couldn't in the past is that AI is really a democratized tool because it can be accessed just by spoken word. Uh, you don't even necessarily need to type, but it's it's designed to be conversational. And so there's a big opportunity there to say, we can have tools that the average person can use without any special training. And now really the question is, how quickly can this community deploy those? And if you look at the last big technolo technology shift, which you, know, you could argue was the mobile phone revolution, it's had huge benefits for development and humanitarian response, but it took a while. You know, that revolution was largely driven by the private sector. And then you had, you know, small use cases um, that some that turned into big ones, like think about M-Pesa in Kenya. Um, here we have a chance because this is happening at the same time all around the world at kind of the same pace all at once. There is an opportunity for the development sector to kind of get ahead of this. And we had a pro event yesterday with CEOs of a roundtable. And that's one of the things we heard was, hey, this is really early. We're just starting to experiment, but there's a chance to get ahead of it. Um, Sean, maybe just as we wrap up on this topic, I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you see as the opportunity in this startup that you're involved in and, and like how we can get ahead of that innovation curve as, as a development community. Well, I think what, what, I, what I'm involved with is actually using s several different AI platforms, Chat, Chat GPT and, and Falcon out of the uh, Emirates. Um, the, and and I, I think I saw just this morning that Chat GPT is now in Arabic. And so you mentioned translation. And I think that um, th this, the, the expertise and the opportunity isn't only in the global north and in uh, the most developed rich nations. I think we're going to see leadership on this, as we saw from M-Pace on, on mobile uh, payments in Kenya. I think we're going to see it from all corners of the world. And uh, and and there 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 could be a danger, and and perhaps initially will be an increase in the gap, right? Because uh, more developed economies might uh, find and latch on to these tools more quickly and be able to use them more quickly. You're absolutely right that there needs to be human, uh, there needs to be human partnership to make sure that the information is correct and being used uh, well. And so that gap might increase an, initially a little bit, but then I think we'll see a, a quick decrease because uh, of the democratizing power of of access and capacity that 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 is uh, is 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 being offered. Uh, I just think, you know, when something is is very complicated because English isn't your first language and the language that's being used in the documents isn't familiar, when all of that, uh, an AI tool can can disaggregate and and uh, and pull out the most relevant information there and even do the writing for you as a first draft, that's that uh, that's pretty uh, uh, significant in terms of democratizing access and use. And Sean, just, you know, I want to draw on your experience as the chief of staff and CEO of USAID, obviously a couple of administrations ago. But when we think of that opportunity, you just laid out the localization uh, opportunity. Do you think this is something that could actually help the agency to drive localization, you know, in the time frame that we're talking about in this administration? And how do you think that's going you know, beyond AI? How do you think USAID is doing on this localization front? Well, well, I think look, it's 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 now the you could argue the third or fourth or 
fifth administration, and they, they, they do tend to be the Democratic administrations, I think, that really push localization. And so it's not the first time around the block on this. I think we've learned a little bit each time and gotten a little more serious and dedicated and capable each time to actually make localization work. And I think AI really could be uh, a game changer if, if used correctly. And there has to be, there has to be recognition and advocacy and championship within USAID and all, and all donors, all government donors and foundations and philanthropists. And I think everyone recognizing, hey, we're always trying to make the matchmaking work. We're always trying to, to leverage financing to go towards good social impact, good programs, good projects. If this can help with that matchmaking, then that's pretty transformative. And so I'm, I'm positive. I think a 25% a goal by, by, by 2025 in two years and, and uh, half of the funding by 2030 is very ambitious. Uh, but if I were in a senior position now at USAID, and I know those who are, are dedicated to this, I, I, I would use AI and every other tool to try to make sure that that uh, happens, but with a recognition that there are a lot of barriers to get over. Organizations uh, working in, in, in the global south, working in conflict, um, need help to understand how you actually access this funding. That connects to another story we published this week about uh, workforce issues at, at the Millennium Challenge Corporation. And uh, Love to get both your takes on that, but maybe first, Anna, you could just tell us a little bit about that story. Right. It's very similar to what's happening in, I think, a lot of companies and agencies, which is the back-to-work office policy. Um, MCC instituted one and, and said, basically, uh, you could lose your job uh, if you don't agree to go back to work, I believe. Uh, don't quote me. There's 50% of the time. Um, and in response, uh, there's been enough people um, who have voted in favor to unionize. So MCC, and I think it also kind of um, spawned other issues and concerns over salaries, pay equity, um, equality in general. So now all of these issues issues in the union will be negotiated with MCC leadership, which, um, as we've written, uh, is open to the negotiation. And it seems like both sides want to figure out at least the return to uh, to the office policy pretty much as soon as possible. So perhaps in a few months or so, but certainly MCC is not going to, is not the only agency that, um, um, sorry, that, that faces this conundrum. It's in the private sector as well. Yeah. I guess I wonder, Sean, your take on where remote work fits in, um, in the broader trends, like here we're talking about localization which you know could entail moving more money and maybe more positions closer to where the work actually takes place. Um, we're also talking about using tools that might make us more productive, like AI. Maybe it means you don't have to be in person at that meeting. Uh, in addition to all the other tools that we've all become accustomed to that are virtual, what's your take on this remote versus you know come back to the office trend within our sector in particular? I, and I think people are asking the, the, the wrong question. Actually, I don't think it's an either or. And what we've done at Anira is I've instituted a policy of work from where you work best, or perhaps better stay to work from where you best get the work done. And we're um, dedicated to people being able to work productively in an enjoyable way. And employees absolutely like the flexibility. And people uh, do it differently. Some people work in the office more. Uh, some people never go in the office. Some people are there most days. Uh, I think in our 
in our program countries, they're in the office more because they're closer to, to doing the programs and, and brainstorming around them and also internet connectivity is not as good. We've been very, um, very dedicated to saying as we work remotely, let's make sure we're using technology in the best way. So you're, you're not just uh, using the, the best tools of Zoom and, and Google Meet and, and WebEx, but you're on camera and you're on microphone and you're treating it as if you're sitting around a conference table. And now, again, back to AI, there's even more that we can do. And I think there are some things we might miss if we go back to doing meetings in the conference room. In a meeting in a conference room, you don't get to see everyone's name in front of them in case you forgot someone's name, right? Uh, and you don't get these new tools of being told whether you used a lot of filler words or you used exclusive language uh, or get a quick summary of the of the meeting. So um, I think even doing hybrid meetings is sometimes uh, can be a bit painful to be in person rather than being online because you're missing some of these tools. Now, do we also have to make sure we're continuing to have social contact and, and building trust uh, within our own employees and, and with other organizations? I think people working at home have to remember they have to do meetings so they can do the meeting using online tools, but treat it as a real meeting, have coffee with someone and actually sit and have coffee in front of your camera so that it really does feel like you're sitting across the table from one another or actually get out and, and meet. And of course, depending on the on the context and the meeting and the objective, sometimes you, you absolutely feel like an in-person meeting is, is more productive. So I think we have to keep looking at this. I do feel I, I'm certain that flexibility works and the stories we hear is when an organization management tries to take away flexibility and employees don't want that flexibility taken away. And they'd like to be treated as adults where they can figure out where they work best. Now, do you have to manage that? Sure, but you have to manage your workforce, even if you're all sitting in the office and you're not standing over someone's desktop if they're sitting in the office anyway. So a lot of management is remote in one sense to begin with. So I, I think that's where we are. We have to um, continue to be flexible and allow people to work where they work best and use tools to make it as close to in-person as possible and then keep thinking about the issue and, and asking ourselves the question and recognizing uh, we might have biases coming into it, and how do we keep asking others and figuring out what works best? Do you feel like that's the general consensus, Sean, when you talk to your fellow chief executives of other international nonprofits? Do they generally feel the same way, or is there some angst about this? You know, because we hear that in the private sector, there's a lot of angst about you know often older uh, executives running businesses, and they want to see their employees back in the office. Are, are you, you feel like that's also playing out in the nonprofit and the development oh, space? Oh, certainly. There is lots, yeah. there's lots of angst. And some of it is about, you know, the rent you're paying on your office, but that's a sunk cost. And I think we have to be careful too. The, 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 the real estate industry and landlords are going to do everything they can to try to keep people coming, continuing to come into physical offices. But, um, oh, there's absolutely angst. And I think, uh, the angst is 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 real and it's reasonable and it needs to constantly be looked at. We have to ask questions. We have to do staff surveys. We have to figure out when we say that something's missing, brainstorming or coffee cooler chat. I think we have to say that's a real concern. How do we meet it? It just may be that going back to the office is not the answer. I mean, offices are only, uh, I think they're only a couple hundred years old. And then a hundred years of that was factory offices and, and sort of white collar offices, I think is only about a hundred years old. So it's not like we've had offices all of our, all of our uh, uh, history and existence. So I think we need to say, yes, those are real issues. Is the office the answer? And in some cases it might be. In other cases, you 
uh, maybe you save the money with a with an office or get a small office and you do more staff retreats and, and more uh, travel so that staff are close to the work that you're doing. Uh, I think that that's what we have to keep looking at and asking ourselves. Yeah, and I, and I wonder if it's trickier in some ways for nonprofits, mission-oriented organizations where, you know, in the private sector, you can look at that bottom line and see, you know, are profits going down? And if they are, maybe there's a problem we need to address. And part of it could be our flexible working arrangements. But in the nonprofit sector, it's all about mission. And, you know, I guess the question is, are organizations able to tell whether there there is some negative impact from the way that they have arranged their their flexible, you know, work from anywhere strategies? Maybe that drives some of the angst in the space. I don't know what you think, Sean. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we do have to figure out how to measure it. And I don't think it's very easy. And we had huge productivity increase through through COVID. We are now delivering twice, more than twice as much assistance as we did before COVID. Is that is that because somehow uh, COVID made us better at our work, working remotely made us better? It's I, I'm not sure, maybe. I mean, certainly people like that they don't uh, lose the commuting time. Um, but it is, I think you're right, it is hard to measure. And I think we do have to measure it. And uh, and and that critical issue of of trust is is really important, and it does feel like uh, trust is a little harder to uh, build up uh, remotely. And so, how do we make sure people are getting together, that they get to know each other, that they get to know things about their their employees that aren't just about their day to day work, um, and figuring that out? But some people also don't mind missing that. Some people. Uh, you know, they have a, a network of friends and, and their workmates are their workmates. Uh, so it's uh, everyone's a little different on this. We, I think we have to ask questions. We have to listen to what people are thinking and uh, and recognizing that flexibility seems pretty paramount and, and ask, is there something we're losing because we're uh, advocating for and allowing that that level of flexibility? Sure. I mean, one argument people make is that if you want to do innovation, you have to be in person. It's obviously very much a debatable topic, but it leads me to another piece we published this week, which is around uh, innovation in the philanthropic space and uh, five kind of big areas. I think areas that probably generally everyone listening to this has heard of, uh, but maybe Anna, you can give us a quick overview of that. And then I'd love to get Sean, your take on, on how much you see those areas of innovation and philanthropy playing out in your work. You know, I think the big takeaway from our article on the, the five biggest trends in philanthropy is, again, it tie, it goes back to localization. Um, one of the, the big developments is called Big Bets, um, where you have these larger one-time donations. And really part of the goal is to ensure that the recipient has more control over the money. Um, likewise, we all know about cash transfers, uh, direct cash transfers, which again is intended for to empower the local recipient to to know what's best for them in terms of spending that cash. Um, and then lastly, I think there's uh, um, trust-based philanthropy, which again is just what it sounds like, trusting that the local community knows what is best for them. So again, I think one of the biggest trends we've seen in that ph philanthropy article is specifically um, empowering local communities. Yeah, the other couple of areas we talk about in that piece are blended finance, which is obviously a big topic with uh, the World Bank's new leadership. You know, can you get private sector money to to work with a nonprofit or public sector money to uh, really grow and, and fill that gap that you talked about, Sean, the few trillion dollar gap to reach the SDGs? And then 
an ideology that's become really uh, popular, especially from among West Coast philanthropists called effective altruism. Again, probably widely known by our audience here, but but the idea that you could really measure the output and that you should make trade-offs between interventions that are more effective versus those that are less cost-effective. Um, I guess I wonder, Sean, these are the big trends as we talk about in the piece. Do you see any of these playing out in your work at Anera in a, in a real in a real-time way? Oh, absolutely. And I uh, created shortly after I joined uh, Anera almost six years ago, I, I uh, created and, and got the board to approve creation of Anera Ventures so that we could be open to impact investment. And if you look at the if you look at the funding gap and needs, I mean, arguably, it could be met just with with wealth from high net worth individuals and the, the next generation of wealth, the transfer of wealth by 2030 is estimated to be between 30 and $68 trillion of, of funding going from um, from boomers to millennials. And, and that next generation of philanthropists, I was just at the Nexus Global Summit in New York a couple weekends ago where, where the members of Nexus are, are worth an estimated $750 billion. And they, generally speaking, of course, a, 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 a desire philanthropy and funding and a desire to make a difference comes in all kinds of shapes and size, sizes. But generally, they're looking for more assurance that there'll be an impact. And there's a little bit of a cross-cutting uh, current around, uh, across these innovative ways. Um, and I think the other one we're seeing in most of them is a recognition that to have more trust, to trust in in local ideas. And localization is really a response to the fact that localization is happening in developing humanitarian assistance. The, the ideas and the leadership don't just come from uh, the West and the North now. They come from uh, every corner of the world and it's not just the ideas and the leadership but it's also the, the funding and uh so recognizing hey th th there's a lot of good work going on and and a lot of people know what they're doing and they're having success and they just don't have enough funding to scale it and then there are different ways some people say let's do more philanthropy i do think that impact investment is a big piece of this because i think a lot of the wealth the vast majority of the wealth is not being leveraged for social impact. It's just creating more wealth. And if you look at, at uh, Sir Ronald Cohen, Ronnie Cohen's book, Impact, Reshaping Capitalism to Drive Real Change, it's a, it's a great read, by the way, and it, it's, a, it's a quick read and a compendium of all that is happening already in impact investment. And a lot of it is around uh, development where there is a financial return, uh, social enterprises that are getting financial return on their products or their services. But a lot of it also, and this is where I think there's a lot of room for growth, a lot of it is on pay for success models where outcomes funders who are used to putting millions of dollars into, into the desire to have social impact, maybe having some donor fatigue and feeling like they're not always certain they're having the impact they want. So if if we as implementers can say, if we guarantee you the outcome, will you pay us at the end and pay us maybe a little more than you would have because we're guaranteeing that outcome? We can then get impact investors to fund upfront, to invest in the program, in the solution, uh, and get paid back by the outcomes funder. And I think we'll see a lot more of that. And I think when the only way to really meet the financing gap is to tap into the people who don't invest in social impact because they don't know, they're not interested, they just want to make more money. But when you tell them, hey, how about making money? You know, maybe you make a little less, maybe you don't make, maybe you make the same return as you do uh, uh, funding uh, capitalist endeavors, you, you're you going to have a social impact and, and get money back. That then becomes very attractive. And I think that that's where we're going to see real growth. And all of the other trends as well, big 
big bets, uh, I, I think makes a lot, a lot of sense. Uh, there's, there's never enough funding and, and making the, 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 the giving, the support, the partnership a little bigger makes sense. Uh, I think there is a, a question of, uh, how do you make sure that it's sustainable as well as a big bet, a one-off and then what's after that. But that's on both sides of the equation. The, the implementers with the solutions need to make sure they're figuring out how to make the, those those sol- uh, sustainable solutions actually sustainable. Well, I'll just point out to people listening in that a few weeks ago, we published another pro story about a an online marketplace that's being developed called Outcomes X. To Sean's point about paying for outcomes, there's a, an initiative to try to create a platform for that where you can essentially rate the quality and riskiness and credibility of of outcomes, whether it's you know improving literacy rates or health outcomes, and then you can just buy those outcomes through a platform. So there's a lot of excitement and attention around that space. Not as much money yet as there is excitement and attention, but hopefully this is the beginning of a burgeoning movement. If you're interested in these topics, again, there's more in that story that we've been referring to. Um, have, have a look there. And I just want to say a big thank you to, to Sean Carroll, our special guest this week, and to my colleague, Anna Goel. It's been great to talk to the two of you. Well, thanks. It's been great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for all the work you're doing and these articles that we've talked about and the issues we've talked about. Really appreciate it. Pleasure to be here as always, Raj. This has been This Week in Global Development. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe using the link in the description. To get even more coverage and analysis on the most pressing development issues of the day, become a DevX Pro member by going to devx.com slash membership and signing up. Thank you for listening and see you next week.